morning what is up i don't know what's up with my picture if my picture does not look like it's in high def to you it does not look like it's in high def to me and i don't know why it's a brand new thing but i'm not going to waste my time on it this morning i'd rather hang out with all y'all and talk about some good stuff some theology some knowing god some life in the world coronavirus anybody nervous about coronavirus yet Everybody else seems to be around me is like nanny, left and right. Dear heavens, emergencies, proclamations, don't you dare do this is this, and so forth. And yet the world keeps going on. I went shopping for groceries yesterday. There was plenty of meat to buy. Everything was fine. So I am still torn. What do you think? You guys can talk about it in the comments here while I yammer on here at the opening about the comment section a little bit. Uh, so it, it, there was a great conversation last week and I'm really glad you guys had it as you had it about chatting and super chat and how Fisk engages all of that and blah, 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 right? Here's the thing we got to decide, just decide right away, right? If you're chatting in the comments, you're chatting because you enjoy chatting. And if you want Fisk to see it, he might, it kind of depends on life in the day. Um, if you super chat in the comments, Fist is going to make every attempt to see it and pull it out because apparently that's the etiquette and I show it off and yeehaw. However, uh, this is not the covenant at Sinai, right? Uh, super chat is something that you do because you want to do it and chatting is something you do because you want to do it. And this show in this place is a place to do that. That's awesome. That's cool. Have a conversation. I will be there as much as I possibly can. But here's the here's the trick. You just have to like love life and forgive me a little bit on this one. Here's the trick. That when you are talking, it's very difficult to also read something different at the same time. And since the show more or less involves me talking, <laughs> it's difficult for me to then follow the conversation in the thread, much less glance at it for less than, uh, for more than five seconds or so. I can glance over right now. Like I can see right now, look, hey, look, Renee, Dixon. I can do it all while still moving. Renee Dixon says, haha, weird time to hit send. There you go. I have no idea what that's about. I can do that without stopping talking, but to do more than that means the show's going to be something like, I need some like background music, background music for this. Be like, this be like over here. Like, okay. Now what's this say? And I'm not really sure. And, hmm, and, uh, so just imagine you tuned in for the first time right now, and I'm just, I oh, was it Brian said this, and oh, yeah, that's funny, okay, okay. You know, I, th that's not the show you want, right? So we got a happy medium here. All this is to say, if you want to chat, chat. Awesome. I will not ignore you on purpose, and we have people reading through this and letting me know the most, what, I don't know, fascinatingest things that go on, which, uh, hopefully we'll see this this morning, I can use a little bit for the next week's show, potentially. So so we have an answer there. Um, and then Super Chat, if I hear it and see it, and my program that I do use does allow me to hear it and see it, um, I am going to grab it and throw it out, and we're going to chat about it as soon as I can. Apparently, there might be something where Super Chats disappear, someone was saying to me, but I don't think so. I think they're there if I go back and I look for them. I just have to hear them, and I do have a sound that it makes if I'm listening for it to happen, but then there were also uh, like, like five different amazingly cool suggestions of new softwares to go and explore and perhaps try to use in order to solve all of these problems, and that's awesome too. Except for I don't have the time to learn five new softwares and have them maybe work, right? I want what's working to work and to not worry about it too much. So here's the super chat rule. If you want a super chat, do it. If you don't, please don't. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and that's totally cool with me. And if you want to chat, do it. And if you want a conversation, we got some great people who are going to watch out for you on the sidebar and maybe make it so I can see it. And we got people reading it later to let me know what I missed anyway. And if possible, I will give time to, oh, look, Renee, you're right on top again. Maybe it's the Luther's seal that made you stand out. I will, I will, I will hop over here and just randomly, the danger, I can't do it too randomly, uh, deal with individual cups only at my church tomorrow. I don't like it, but I accept that it is pastor's decision. Most of our congregation is elderly and higher risk than me. Yes, coronavirus. I brought it up, didn't I? I did. It, it is. The trick is, if you think individual cups are going to solve the problem, you don't understand this virus very well. And that's often the case with the argument for chalice individual cups. You're really going to have a problem if people come to church sick. So anybody who comes to church sick should probably be encouraged gently to go home. That, that's kind of the first thing. And the second thing is where you're going to pass the germs is on your hands, uh, not on the cup that you're drinking from. Strangely, strangely how that is, but it's, it's from person to person to person, right? And, and so the issue is uh, things like, like uh, offering plates, things like shaking hands. Uh, those are the real, real places we're going to have an issue. Um, and then if you're, if you're going to get worried about communion, then we should just not commune. I mean, it's, it's just either just do it or don't. I don't know. That's my opinion. But I'm totally with you, Renee, in respecting your pastor's decision because each little group, and don't get me wrong in this, every single one of us out here right now, hey, each little congregation is going to have to figure out how to do it. And some people are going to be more afraid than others. And sometimes you have to bear with that, right? Sometimes that's just the way it is, that the fear of the world gets us and we can divide Right? We can divide over what would be you know, the most ideal practice in the most perfect world, or we, we can stand firm and say, okay, you know, but we are, we are a communion in Christ. Right? And so we will walk together in, in peace, trying to, to work with each other. So I'm with you both on your, your approach. And then also, yeah, we're, we're not doing individual cups only. We're going to let people make their own decision uh, at, at my place, and I will definitely be communing um, uh, although, you know what? I'm probably going to do it by intention because I have a cold. I've had a cold for two weeks, maybe. It could be allergies to our guinea pig. I just realized. We just got him. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but, but in any case, I will be intincting uh, myself uh, so as to make evident that, look, you can do this without really spreading germs. It's, it's quite possible. Um, so... With all that said, yes. Okay, we may come back to some coronavirus. We were talking about chat and super chat and just making sure everybody knows that, uh, hey, I'm going to do my best. I am. I'm just a dude in a closet. I'm not kidding. I really am. You might think I'm famous and have all this crazy going on. No, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm a dude in a closet with, what do, what do I got? With a sword. Um, Without Flesh, my book is continuing to do well. If you got the newsletter, you'll see a, a book review of that as well. Uh, where was there? Somewhere else someone sent me something. I can't remember. The, the, the thank yous that have been coming have been wonderful, right? Kind of things like, oh, this is just what I needed right now. Thank you for this. So that's great. Without Flesh, I got to promote it. So I said it out loud. There you go. I'm kind of tired of it. And I don't really want to talk about this next thing either. Blah. But it, it, there is... The color in this room is terrible. My goodness. I, I mean, I look tired, but this is ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what to do. This? A little better? Why is my HD... Now I'm, now I'm going to go off track on this. Why is my... It's all fuzzy, right? It's all flickery? Is that the way it looks for you guys there? Anyway. I'm going to have to go and talk about now the podcast financing Patreon bamboozlement retrofitting that we're going to do. Uh, if you care or if you know or if you support me on Patreon, you do that by basically uh, giving a pledged amount 
per podcast is the way it's set up right now. So my, my podcast, uh, The Mad Christian, which is not this show, but this show is always on that podcast as bonus content. Um, uh, that co- that through Patreon, people pledge to, to support by so much every basically week. Uh, and the trick is, with all the other stuff that it is supporting, it seems kind of weird and overloading this one part of, of the, the media output, the podcast. And what it's done is it's taken away my freedom to be creative with that podcast. So things like the Revelation series and the Daniel series, which take more work, have kind of fallen aside because I have to just keep something going every week on this schedule. And so I'm trying to figure out how to like better manage creative process, right? So I don't kill it, um, which kind of has happened a little bit or is happening there by tying it to the uh, uh, to the Patreon kind of need, right? So like on Thursday, even if I really would like to work on the Daniel thing, but I know I need like seven hours, well, I got to get a show up in an hour and a half or two hours here. So um, am I going to go do more research on Daniel or am I going to talk about what I've been studying anyway, right? So what I'm thinking is this. Here's what I'm thinking. Um, and I don't think I'm just thinking it. I'm going to do it. So if you got to go and pull out a Patreon because of this, go for it. Um, but I don't think it's changing anything. I think it's keeping everything more or less the same. Hello, Willard with the super chat. Look at how quick I was on the ball. Look at that. I saw it coming. Willard says, first live viewing, testing, super chat. There it is, brother. It works. And you are now not famous either, along with me on my In a, in a Closet show. Um, you distracted me. I was talking about uh, shakes and doozies. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Effectively, what everybody who is supporting on Patreon is doing is you are subscribing to me with a weekly subscription. This is already what's going on. You're subscribing to all my content with a weekly subscription, and then you have the ability to see it on the Patreon feed in the form of the podcast only, which is actually not a lot. And the amount of effort to cross-reference and bring all the content back onto the Patreon like like page, that would be ridiculous, actually. That'd be a full-time job all by itself. So we, we've never done that. Um, so here's what I'm thinking I'm going to do. I'm going to change the language on the page, um, and it'll talk instead about subscribing to the podcast. It is that it's a weekly subscription. It's a weekly subscription. Uh, and if you uh, you go with that, um, then you're going to have things like this show, all the sermon content, and we're going to be working on, but not necessarily bringing out weekly, I'll be working on uh, that 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 better, not a better, I don't want to say it, getting back to a little more of the older form storytelling podcast. I'll still throw out content from Coons. I'll still throw out content from Wolf Mueller. Conversations that I have will still go up there. It's just going to be called bonus content now as opposed to the number. And we're going to keep the number of the show running with Saturday morning chill instead, right? So this will look like it's the primary show on the podcast, but the bonus, and we're going to go into Daniel is kind of my inclination here first. Uh, Daniel chapter six. It's the most famous story of all time, almost. Um, Daniel chapter 6 is is the process works, and we're going to get that sucker done, but it won't be on a weekly weekly basis. So hopefully that all makes sense. I'm going to make that move, and if you find out later and you didn't know, I really am not doing this to hurt your feelings. Um, and uh, But I, I, I can't live without the Patreon support either. So uh, the only way to unhinge and move to any kind of subscription fee that doesn't break Patreon uh, is just to do it this way. So... Um, uh, or reach out to me, of course, if if that's a problem. We're continuing to feed through all their comments that go through redfist.com slash contact. We're looking at all those things. In fact, some of it's making in the newsletter. Some of you all are so much smarter than me that your, your comments back to me, I'm like, you're probably right, 
I can't even begin to argue with you because you just said lots of really intelligent things. And so I want to share that, right? I want to share that with the world. I'm also, you're also sending stuff like artwork and music lists and whatnot. So the newsletter, which you can sign up to at the webpage by clicking on newsletter, uh, the newsletter has some of that already coming out, more coming out this week. Really cool looking like um, comic book crucifix destroying a dragon head thing, which is just amazing. So that's all in the newsletter. Um, you should sign up for that. Um, oh, I had a transition, but now I lost my transition. Goodness gracious. All right. So, 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 so. Oh, so this is what we're going to do then. Okay. Uh, we're going to look at some stuff from you guys from the last week or so. I got to remember how my system works here. I got to do this. And then we got to go down here and put this back on the manual. And then we're all good. So, hey, we got some a little more super chat etiquette uh, from, uh, from one of you out here. Yo, yo Mr. Fisk. Now, I appreciate the yo, and the mister's okay, but it's it's an REV if you don't mind. Uh, yo, yo, Mr. Fisk, SM Show related. Whenever you ask for a link in the chat, the reason you never get one is because you, YouTube does not allow links to be posted in the chat directly. Maybe, he did not type it that way, I just feel like saying it that way. Uh, maybe ask for them to be messaged to you via Twitter or something. Also, I think the reason you missed several super chats is because they disappear from the top bar of the chat after a few minutes. Um... I've seen the one this morning. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Uh, after a few minutes or longer, if the amount was more, is there a place on YouTube that just tracks each super chat so you don't have to scroll all the way back to find them? It's a good question. Um, first, about the link thing. So, so yeah, I apologize for asking for links in the side. What I would like then would be a link sent to revfist.com slash contact because I always see that. Right. One day, one way or another, that will show up in my week um, if it goes through that. So, with that said, like I was saying earlier, I can only track so many links. I am on full anti-internet. I don't know how to tell the world this. It's it's true. Hold on, let's go back to like like real confession time. You you want to see you know my tears and my my really bad lighting. Um, I am I'm on full like I, for Lent. I decided to kind of um. It wasn't for Lent. I'm not even that pious. Three days into Lent, I realized I wanted to give up email for Lent and that this was insane, but I thought I could actually get away with it and do it. And it's not giving up email. It's taking email from around one and a half to two hours a day to instead 15 minutes every day or two. And believe it or not, I've been achieving it, although I feel a tremendous amount of guilt over it because I'm not responding quickly to things, uh, especially to things that I didn't ask to be brought into the conversation on. And this isn't talking about you, right, necessarily. This is just talking about, you know, random stuff in life that comes across your emails. I just don't need this, right? Uh, and and so I'm, I'm trying to go and, and see the ones that come through that are local or important, you know, and then reach out via other mediums. And, 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 and have that, but the point is, ah, as I struggle with what it means to like lower my email screen time to some re reasonable, feasible level, uh, uh, the, the other, oh, and I lost it though. Uh, the other piece that comes with this that I'm struggling with or that I'm, I'm coming to terms with, oh yeah, is, is the, the further I get away from email, the more I don't want to touch a computer. <laughs> It's so weird. I did not expect this to happen to me. I am I am like Luddite right now. I hate computers. I don't want to touch my phone except to play music. I want to play music on my AirPods. The AirPods, dear heavens, the, the pros. I can't even rate them highly enough. They are amazing. Amazing. Uh, battery life has been um, confusing to figure out. It's totally like a recommendation tangent here. Battery life has been confusing to figure out because the pack doesn't 
really tell you whether they're fully charged or not in a way that I've figured out how clear this is and whether it's charged. So the pack can run out of battery and all that. But but aside from that, they're, they've been amazing. But aside from those AirPods, I do not want to touch technology. Like I'm not like anti-microphone, like, hi, microphone, we're okay. We'll be fine together, right? But like, if I have to go do something on my to-do list, which I'm keeping on a piece of, pa- piece of paper right now, um, and it involves going to the computer, I shove it into the corner of the to-do list until I have like five or six of them. I batch them up. And then, and this is for something as simple as like an Amazon purchase. I am so in full civilization, like recoil. I'm sure it'll pass. I, it's for Lent, I think. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a little overwhelming. Um, uh, and why do we end up on this tangent? Because it had something to do with, oh yeah. So like when it comes to like researching some new program to make all of YouTube work better, I'm just like, no, I just don't. I don't know. I'm going to play with my kids right now. I'm going to smoke a cigar and enjoy this 50 degree weather outside that I haven't had for a while. It's Northern Illinois, not Southern California. So I miss the sun, right? Um, uh, that kind of thing. So, but, 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 uh, I do want you to share what you find useful with me. And if you want me to look at a link, don't just send me a link. Like send me something that has like, why? Give me some bullet points. Explain it, right? Because um, uh, if, if it's useful, that's awesome. I still want useful. And I think I think my, my Ludditism will pass eventually. Um, as far as YouTube having a super chat place for control, I bet you if I were to dig into learning how to use the YouTube studio, which I've never wanted to do since they went to beta because it changed everything and got really confusing. Um, uh, it was like the new beta or whatever they called it. And they forced you into it, all that stuff. And it's fine. But I don't know. I use Ecamm. Ecamm lets me see Super Chats. Like, but see, I didn't see that one. It's there now. That's really weird. Like Mike Duke, who just went crazy on me, told me I ruled for 20 bucks. Dear heavens, Mike. That's awesome. I really appreciate that. I don't know that I rule. Um, and I could go all nerdy on you and be like, you know, like the Lord Jesus rules. <laughs> he reigns, right? The Lord reigns in Zion. That's why you're here. But um, I'm, I, I think this is more the skateboard world rules, right? Like righteous. The skateboarders knew all our theological terms. Did you ever catch on to that? They didn't say sanctified so much, but but righteous, right? I mean, that was that was a skateboarding term. So thank you for uh, having me rule, Mike Duke. I really appreciate that. And the smiley face to go with it. I was talking about super chats disappearing from the top bar and using YouTube. So I don't know, but Ecamm lets me see it on the side. Um, I'm, I can't really show it to you directly. It gets highlighted in like blue and then I can I can always drag and gra- pull it over like Riff Raff here who says, Ardoth, thank you. Didn't know if I would get an answer. Thank you so much. So there you go. You got an answer. And I like your name, Riff Raff. You, you, got, uh, you got pulled up on the screen randomly just to demonstrate that it happens, right? Oh, there we go. Out of Home Alone, right? Right? Is that Home Alone? Adoy rules? I think so. Paul? Nice mustache, Paul. All right. So we're going to move back over here to, we're going to try a new feature. Not a, not a bug. But a feature, I just have to hit the button that makes my screen. Oh, is it hidden now? It is hidden now. Hold on. Confusion. I is confusion now. Oh, do you catch that reference? There we go. That's what I want, but then I need a different button. It's not that one. Come on, where'd you go? Oh, right there. All right. So what we got here is just some comments and whatnot from last week's chat. And we, uh, one of y'all, Frisbee the Hand, put this together uh, for me. And so I'm just going to scroll through, and I'm not going to necessarily talk about everything, but I may mention things offhandedly, but you can also see your own comments. Uh, if you missed the conversation last week, some of the stuff that we thought from within Mad Christian Newsletter, at least, we thought was was really worth 
thinking about. And it's impossible for me to respond to all of it, but like, yeah. Uh, so Matthew says, you know, I think we in the LCMS are way more sacramentarian than we begin to realize. Yeah, that's kind of the point of my book. Although my book's not written for us either. It's written for the, for the church that we have followed without realizing it. Uh, Jonathan says, no sip included. As a non-Lutheran, I have never really noticed until I started getting back into your videos how my church says represents in reference to the Lord's Supper. And now it does bother me, especially since I don't know how that language got into the church in the first place because sacramentarians put it there. <laughs> uh, or whether it is even a conscious decision or we assume it without realizing. My guess is most people don't realize it anymore, but the theology is assumed already. And so they believe it should be there. Now, Todd says, I, I've heard that in Remembrance of Me can be translated to For My Remembrance, if this is the case, who is doing the remembering here? I believe I do touch on that in Without Flesh, although I don't give it a ton of time because it's an I don't know. Uh, at the end of the day, it can be In Remembrance of Me or As My Memorial. I prefer that even to For My Remembrance, As My Memorial or As My Testimony. That's the strong and obvious reading of it, I think, but you would not have a testimony to you or, uh, no, this is the other, how do I say this? You would not have a testimony. Ah, I, I must take a step back. So if you think then of the supper as being, when Jesus hands you the supper, right, that that is not merely his testimony to the Father on your behalf, but also his testimony to you on your behalf. You're going to then remember what that means every time it happens, right? Uh, but the power of the memory the power of your memory in the remembrance of it is his testimony. This stone, think of, think of when Joshua sets up the stones to testify to Israel what had happened at the Jordan River, you know, to, for all time. It's like that kind of a thing. The rainbow in the sky. God sees the rainbow and it is, it is a sign unto him to continue to do good things, right? Uh, that's the kind of testimony or memorialnesses that's taking place here. Um, and to just have it be merely my personal memory, that's where that alone is not, it's not really fair, but you could grammatically make the case, um, that it's a, it's a fair reading, but then you're into the question of, okay, what makes it a fair reading? You know, uh, not just grammatically, but meaningly hermeneutically all that. Uh, so Matthew says, uh, it's, it's something I've even noticed in myself, a failure to regard Jesus as really truly being with his church. Amen. The Ascension. We don't believe in it. Uh, as someone who grew up Baptist, Henry says, evangelicals get stuck on the word remembrance. Don't realize the, uh, the why doesn't alter the what. Yes. That's right. Uh, they're materialists through and through, rationalists through and through, uh, anti-miracle when it suits them. Strange indeed, a position to hold, and then wondering why the legs are falling out from underneath the American church, because we don't believe in miracles. And it starts with this is. Uh, uh, Jimmy Dean, who's not Jimmy Dean, uh, says, Our Baptist church did communion once a year at Easter time. The reason was that scripture doesn't say how often to do it. Talk about taking liberty with the, with the word. Scripture does not, in fact, command you. So if you're looking for a law, every week it shall be. And we're not on Sinai anymore. Scripture does, however, show you a pattern in Acts. And it's pretty clear if you take the time to look. Um, now, Book Rex from you, Noah, asked about Dan Carlin's The End is Always Near. And the answer is no. I have not read. I did not know Dan Carlin wrote a book, but that makes me really excited. I don't, I already like listen to Dan reading hardcore history to me every night for bed as my bedtime story uh, for about 10 minutes. So I can't imagine what him having a book on Audible would be like. So thank you for the rec. Brian says, uh, Gary V talks about this in Crush It, doing the unscalable. And Gary V is a guy, I've checked him out a little bit. What an interesting fellow. Um, doing the unscalable. That's interesting as well. Okay, good stuff, guys. I'm writing that one down too. Doing the 
unscalable. Let's make sure that that is not connected with Dan Carlin. Uh, Zach says, Art of War, great book. Yes, it is a good book. It is a challenging and a slow book. And The War of Art is also a good book and worth reading. Book of Five Rings, excellent book like that. Uh, David says, have you heard how not to be secular by... Yes, I, I tried reading it. It was hard. It was a hard book. I just ran out of time, I think, for that one. My Calvinist buddy gave it to me. Fascinating how it compares to your first article. Around. So that's cool. When did I try to read that? I was probably going five years ago. So I could, I could try looking back at it. Scripture questions. Some people apply Ephesians 5, 4 to cursing, which I can somewhat see. You know what? I'm not prepped for this. Where is my telephono? Okay. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. We can do it. We can do it. It's going to take half a moment to reset. Bible, I did not think about the Bible, which was a silly thing for Jonathan to do, given that this is a Bible show by and large. Uh, uh, finding it right now. See, this is what happens when I try to talk and do something at the same time. We're going to go look at Ephesians 5 4. Ephesians 5 4 in the headlights. We're going to go ahead and look at all of Ephesians 5. Oh, but you can't see it yet until I go super power cool and bust it back. And then, uh oh. Uh-oh. We got to fix it right there. Fix it. Boom. All right. So, Ephesians 5.4, let there be no filthiness or crude joking or foolish talk, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. In the context of chapter 5 as a whole, Paul's saying, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So beginning is to follow God, imitate God, be like God, reflect God, see what God has said is truly who he is and have that be what you are a shadow of. Yeah, sure. Which means walking in love for each other as Christ loved us, gave himself up for us the cross, sacrifice, okay? So this is all about how we are under God's grace. That That's the starting point here, right? Verse three, but, but there's some evil things that are a result of our fall and we should try not to do them on purpose. But sexual immorality and all impurity, now we all go, yeah! Or covetousness, and we all don't, Pay attention to that word. Must not even be named among you. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he just put covetousness on the same public equivalence as sexual immorality? Hmm. Something tells me we don't pay attention to that. Uh, in any case, these should not be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. So that would be on the same level as as the above, including covetousness, uh, which are out of place when it said that there be thanksgiving. Okay, ooh cool move there. For, as you may be sure of this, uh, uh, chapter uh, verse 5, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, or I would translate that as disbelieving, disbelief. So here's here's the, the thingamajiggy, right, with this guy. So you want to take that verse out of the middle of that. You make ju is just about what was it? Course. Let's go back and look at it here. Uh, Ephesians five four to cursing, cursing. What do you even mean by that word cursing? Um, uh, we'll talk about that here in a second. But if you're gonna do that, be very very careful, very very careful, because you're you're equating whatever this is talking about is on the same level as sexual immorality, which we should see as the same level as a life of mm, hoarding. 
and doing for yourself what you want for yourself. Those things all are one in this. And it's a warning that as those under grace, we should be striving against those things and not let anybody tell us that these are good things to do. Right? Ultimately, they're not good things. Uh, we should not be partners with those who do such things. Yeah. And he goes on, you know, walk as children of light, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord, take no part in fruitful works of darkness. Some things are too shameful even to speak of, right? Um, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. I am not going to then go and say that this here is St. Paul warning us about the filthiness of the S word, the cursing death of America. Sorry, everybody. I just I just can't say that. What this is about, ultimately, is talking about women in a derogatory way. That's what this is about. Look at the context, okay? What he is saying is that the language of the Christian, and particularly the Christian man, should be not should not be filled with jokes that are about the uh, the prior sentence. Oh, I can't highlight it. Come on now, computer. This is your own program. ESV that won't let me highlight something. Okay, it, your jokes should not be about sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. This should not be the talk of your mouth. That's what this is about. Okay, it's right there. Instead, the talk of your mouth should be gratefulness for what you have, as opposed to covetousness. That's like the opposite of it, right? Gratefulness for what you have, for the gifts that you've been given, to receive them for what they are. Gratefulness for the wife of your youth, as the as the uh, the proverb teacher Solomon teaches us to to understand, right? And that these things go against that, so that the, from the talk you eventually get to the action, which is a sign of your disbelief, right? A sign of your disbelief. So um, now cursing, American cursing. Let's go back to the straight on camera for this because that's not really um, the dealio here. Come on now, computer. There we go. Uh, cursing. Now, this is just the thing. What do you even mean by that word cursing? You know what that word means? I don't think anybody even knows what that word means in English. We don't even know what that word means. It's got like three or four different semantic fields we use. And the most primary one, the dominant usage of the word curse is not to curse. It's quite amazing. It is instead to be coarse, to be uncouth, to speak language that is vernacular in a really, really American way, right? That's really what we mean when we say, you know, oh, he just cursed. We do not mean generally to blaspheme the almighty name of Jesus, although sometimes we do mean that. When we say using Jesus as a curse word, right? Uh, but even then, we still don't mean to curse because to curse Jesus would not be to use his name as a curse word. To curse Jesus would be to say, I hate Jesus. That's cursing Jesus, okay? Uh, or to say, you know, you know, Jesus be damned. That would be cursing Jesus. Because uh, a curse is words you pronounce like a magic spell upon some other thing or person which would exert over it a spiritual power or a supernatural power. So when you stub your toe against a rock and you say, now I'm teaching, so please don't get too freaked out. This is what you would say, damn it, right? Well, what have you just done with your words? You have attempted to send that poor little piece of rock to burning fiery hell, which is really not your prerogative. It's not. You're a creature. It's not your job. And it was its fault? Did the universe move so you could stub your toe? No, you're a fallen sinful idiot, like me, right? We all are. And you stubbed your toe because you weren't watching what you were doing. And you, thinking you should be God and thinking the universe should bow to you in anger, unjustified, tell the rock to go to hell. 
Okay? That's cursing. Christians do this, by the way, all the time. Now, I'm going to come back to that as well. But, but, but first, first, first. I mean, Ned Flanders, I'm just going to say right there, Ned Flanders cursed like a sailor, man. That guy was like letting it fly. He just used piddly poodly words to make it sound like he wasn't. But that guy was sending the world to hell left and right. So this is where the, the distinction between the language you use to curse and what cursing is, what the venom of asps on our lips means in Romans chapter 3 death on our tongues, right? Uh, that's such a more important thing than poo-poo and pee-pee and, and, and the words we use for that. And it's just a distraction to let the world's Victorian fear of poo-poo and pee-pee keep us from seeing the real cursing that's going on and that we don't believe also in real cursing. That is, we don't believe anybody's out there using words to try to make magical evil things happen, even though paganism is completely on the rise. Witch doctors and shamans are all over the place. You got a yoga studio every single corner on. And not all yoga studios are, are filled with shamans, but there are shamans. And what do they do? They curse. <coughs> they curse. They bless too, but they curse. And they believe that those words are magically powerful, like unto prayers only not waiting for a response, but guaranteed to have action. Christians aren't supposed to do that at all, ever. That is idolatry. That is false worship. That is to worship other gods. That is to disbelieve in the holiness of the name of God. That is what the Bible says we should not do when it talks about cursing. Now, again, Ephesians 5.4 is about filthy jokes. Jokes that deal with sexual immorality. That would lead you to think it's okay and normative. Uh, but cursing, the Bible does say not to practice divinity, right? Divination. Uh, you are not supposed to curse. But then, again, if we're going to talk about not supposed to curse. So every time you stub your toe on that rock and you say, and you managed to not actually get out of your your tongue. Your tongue did not, in fact, curse. But you're a liar if you say that that noise inside of you was not, in fact, a curse. It was it was a very caveman esque, childish, whiny, anti universe. I should be God. Attempt to tell the world to submit to you, or to go to hell. That went on in your heart. And again, I'm just going to say, I think we should be more concerned about battling that and its effect on our life and our mind and the way we see each other than whether or not someone goes to the John or someone goes to the, the poo-pooer, right? I mean, you don't have to use it. We shouldn't use it in church. They should be flinging crudity in church left and right. That's not right either. But really, it's not cursing. It's just not cursing. It's What it is is perhaps impolite, right? Uh, uncouth, again, I said earlier. Uneducated, maybe. Although these days, I think you might be demonstrating your lack of education if you freak out over words that just aren't even that big a deal in the vernacular anymore, you know? So I don't know if that's really what you want me to talk about. We were talking about the Bible. We're going to go back to more of that. Hold on. We'll get there. It, it'll come right back in. Did I miss anything? That was a long stretch. 
There was. Nope, I did not miss the super chats, but we will give you. Hold on. Oh, I just went away. We're going to stay here for the Bible. Uh, Jimmy Dean again says Romans 12, 14 is also used. I don't think that cursing there is related to what Pastor Vince was talking about. Romans 12, 14. Well, we will check it out all the same. Um, it takes me a moment. Did I never even? No, I did. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Romans. Romans 12, 14. Uh, we'll go in context and we're going to need to come back here again to take us to this, to get us to this. Kaboom. Romans 12, 14. Can I even see it? There it is. Uh, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, that is what I'm talking about, actually. That's like what I think biblical cursing is, right? Like we should not speak evil about them. We should not wish evil on them. We should not speak evil about them when they're not there. But really what it's saying is, you know, pray for them out loud to them with, with the gift of kindness and good words about, you know, what God has said. And instead, you know, do not curse them. Do not speak evil to, uh, to them or unto them or seeking them, right? You know, forget you. Right. Uh, by the way, you'd, I would I would contend that the the F and the U of American language is a very secular curse. Right. That's that's in the direction of an actual curse. The word by itself is not a curse. But when you say something to you, now you're in the direction of cursing. Right. And this is but that's still a secular because it's not really a supernatural thing. Um, yeah. A, a real curse. Think about it. It's like a hex. There's nothing like materialistic about that. It's a belief that words have power and they do. And we should believe that because the people of God are saved by words of power, right? So that being said, bless those who persecute you, bless and not curse. I would completely agree with you that generally speaking, Christians in their personal life should not curse. Does that mean that characters and stories are not allowed to curse and we as Christians can't observe it? No, I, I don't think that that would be like saying you can't live in the city, <laughs> You can't talk to people, right? What if they curse to you? Do you like whine about it and try to make them obey your morality? Or do you have some grace? Have some grace, right? That's that's ultimately the point of my conversation here when it comes to what is really cursing in a story and what is not. Because how can you have a story about grace if you can't have any grace? It just It's not going to have a story about grace. Then you're going to have some moralistic code you want to pass on to people. Jedi Knight, Anna. Is that how you spell Anakin? It's like mannequin. Jedi Knight Anakin Cringewalker, super chats me. He says, this is also the logic of pointing out witchcraft includes abortion for people who don't believe the Bible talks about it. Yeah, right. Uh, the word is pharmakeia, Oof, pharmaceutical abuse. That includes abortion. Yeah, that, this is probably from another talk that was going on in there, right? But uh, let's see here. The idea that the people who were taken out by the Israelites in Canaan we're just minding their business, you know, like Native American hippies, just, you know, doing whatever. Um, that is a grand lie. Historically, nobody's that good to begin with. Not even the Native Americans are, were that good. They were they were killing each other. Some of them were peaceful. Not all of them. They were not monolithic. And, you know, there, there's some honorable cultures and there were some really, really disastrous ones. Uh, there was a lot of violence. So you got that. But then this particular area at that particular time in history coming out of Babel and the flood and Ur and, and kind of the, the, the finding of themselves a few centuries removed from their fathers who established these grand cities with Assyria on the rise and all this kind of stuff. Right. So in such a time, their worship of the gods had really gone significantly off the rails in that in that area. But when Abraham comes through, God even says, look, in, in a couple hundred years, the people here are going to be so evil 
that I will have to kill them, but they're not there yet. So you're just going to hang out in this land for a bit. Is it Abraham he says it too? I think it's Abraham he says it too. The, the, the sins of the Amalekites have not been filled all the way up, and he has to wait for it to happen. So that's part of why they go down to Egypt. I mean, that's not really the main reason, but they, but they end up down in Egypt, and when they come back, the sins of the Amalekites now, again, well, human sacrifice, human sacrifice, right? And witchcraft, uh, voodoo, it's, it's more than all of that. I mean, it's, it's the worst powers of darkness. I and mean, when, you, when you read Harry Potter, and the Death Eaters are who the Death Eaters are. And you're like, those are bad people. Okay, well, that's the Canaanites. <laughs> that's the Philistines, like as a culture, you know? Uh, and, and you just kind of have to like, just know that. that. That is not who the Hebrews are. You can see the Hebrews are not. The Hebrews are a very legal justice-oriented system of, 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 of peopling, right? So yeah, so to not lose the connection between paganism and human death it always gets there eventually because, frankly, the blood of bulls and goats is insufficient to placate the gods. And once you figure that one out, you need something more. Why not a firstborn son? Hey, you know, why not a shadowy, evil, wicked version of that um, and, and so forth? All right. So uh, I'm, I'm looking back here at uh, oh, that sounded terrible. I'm certain we got one more Bible question from last week. I was. You are not prepared. Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. I got to go back over here and do this work. Hebrews. You read the beer, Hebrew? It's not bad. Uh, Hebrews. Or is it Hebrews? Is it Messiah Bold, the beer you've been waiting for? Hebrews. Uh, oh. Sorry, this is bad radio. See, this is what I'm talking about. You don't want this. 6, six 4 to 8. Come on. Too many tab buttons. Hebrews. And now, if I don't put the S on the end, what happens? 6... Let's just do six. There we go. That'll be faster. Six. All right. The question is, I'm not going to put it on the screen right now. The question is, Pastor Fisk, what does Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 mean? Don't we believe people who have fallen away can indeed be restored, i.e. King David? If so, oh, this is such a not fun question. How do we reconcile this Hebrews text? All right. Well, the Hebrews text 6 you're talking about reads like this, for it is impossible... In the hands of those who have once been enlightened, and sorry, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those who... For whose sake it is cultivated, it receives a blessing from God, but it bears if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in the end is burned, and so on. And this is right after he says, you know, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of dead, eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, Dot, dot, dot. So it's interesting because it's a strong left turn to make the case you're making from that, that this text is all about him making sure we know that there is no salvation if you fall away. And it's a once fall away, always fall away. And you're tulip to the end of the end of the age. Right. If that's what he's saying in verses four through seven, um, it's a strange left turn in the paragraph. That's fine. Those things happen. But the paragraph is really not about that at all. The paragraph is about how the author of the Hebrews, the book, 
would like us to stop being merely New Testament knowledge-based Christians who understand baptism and uh, ordination, it looks like here, and, and you know, the return of Jesus. Like These are really important things, but he wants us to go learn about Melchizedek, right? He wants us to go learn about the temple. He wants us to do the Old Testament deep dive and try to understand how the Christianity has always been here, but as a shadow of the greater thing that we now have the fullness of. And that's what he wants to do. And then he goes into this stretch, verses 4 and following, where he talks about it being impossible. Now, it's been a while since I looked at this directly, but let me just tell you. When you're looking at the Greek in the New Testament, there's Greek and then there's Greek. I mean, there's, there's John 1, ha lagos, uh, you know, uh, what was it? NRK, NRK ha lagos, yeah, in the beginning was the word, right? I can memorize it, it's so simple. Yeah. And then you get into places like later in Luke, where he's using like these seven syllable words that are like, what are you doing, man? He's like, I'm a doctor. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, uh, you got that. And then, and then you get to places where we're not even sure how it's a sentence. Like, and I don't, some it, it, different things. Like how did it get to that as scripture? But this one is one of those places like from, from four to, to seven, at least to six, but maybe even into seven is not a sentence. It is a string of something called participles. And if you tuned out, then you can't have an argument with me anymore. But a participle is a particular kind of word on which a sentence does not get built, ever. Participles are not sentence structure things. They, 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 they control participial phrases, which are attachments to sentences. The problem is you have a string of participial phrases tied together in the place of what looks like it ought to be a sentence, but kind of isn't. And figuring out where your becauses and wherefores and whys and whatnots and maybes and so forths, because you need those to tie these all together and there's rules for that, you're in a maze before you realize it. And so to come out of this thing with it being your only verse in the whole Bible that is establishes a once damned, always damned position, here's on pretty weak hermeneutical ground. When this really could just be talking about instead, how without faith you go to hell. That if you don't believe and don't care about learning more about the Bible, then you're not a believer and you basically cannot grow anymore. You're going to die. And it's a warning. So we should instead be sure in your case, we know you, you want to believe. And so we're going to go on and talk about Melchizedek now. That fits the paragraph. It fits the grammar as best I think we can because a string of participles does not a sentence make. And there is a verb in there somewhere, but it's really weird. It's been a long time since I looked at it. And this is all without even touching on the fact that you're dealing with an unauthored, so far as we are certain of, antilegomena book. So absolutely, absolutely, this book should be treated with reverence and respect as scripture being antilegomena. That is, it doesn't overturn the homilegumena. So if you would like to go and postulate that you have the once for all verse that makes it so that we're once damned, always damned tulip. And that's the only group theologically that teaches that really at the end of the day. Once you fall away, you never come back. They're the only system that can hold that together. Actually, yeah, because they never really were here in that system. I'm not sure any, I'm not sure any system holds this together in any case. Uh, if you really want to make that case, it's your only verse. And you're stuck with this really not strong argument that has to overturn a bunch of the rest of Scripture, which is saying that God does not desire the death of the wicked and people are restored all the time. Peter gets restored, and then Jesus says, go restore your brothers. Does that mean he, wasn't a, he, he, he was not a believer? How could he be a believer in the resurrection when the resurrection had not yet happened yet? John says as much after the resurrection. They, you know, they, they didn't get it. So 
So they, he didn't really fall away. You, you're caught in a psychological, sociological made-up game about trying to pin the tail on faith. That is a foolish thing to do. Instead, we should take the warning for what it is. You can fall away. And it is no joke to end up outside the faith. So if you don't want to learn more about the Bible, then maybe you should have a little fear of God in you a little bit. Yeah? And learn more about the Bible anyway. Uh, go on to maturity in the faith. Uh, take that from this. Uh, and, and don't worry so much about whether or not King David could fall away and come back. Obviously, people go do evil things that Christians don't do. And obviously, in fact, people go and curse God and don't believe in Jesus anymore and then come back. This is obvious. It happens. And you want to use this one verse that isn't even really a verse to say it's not obvious and it doesn't it doesn't happen. OK, well, have fun with that. Um, I, it just it doesn't sway me. <laughs> you know what I do with this is I see it as the warning that it is. And I thank God for the other side of it, right? That the enlightenment that I have received in the word of God alone, of which this is not by itself, but a portion of, uh, the heavenly gift I have tasted of, that the supper even here, as a fulfillment of the ancient tabernacle's presence of God in my life, that I've tasted of this reality for reals, yeah? And thus the Holy Spirit is a promise to me. I have the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, which is faith. Again, faith alone. And that these, these words of power that God really does give us to speak, things like justification, the word of power. It's like a dragonborn word, right? Justification, right? Kind of thing. These words are the word of God. Powerful to save. They're here. We know these powers are here. Yes, if you're out without that, can you be restored? If you truly understand what God has said about these things, can you be restored? Is it possible? And that's one of the things here. You can put a question mark right there. And it changes the whole thing. And that's that's a grammarian's decision, by the way. Um, well, we're sure you don't need to worry about it. That's where he goes. We're sure of better things for you. But does he say then now, uh, what do you do now? You got, I, I've met these people, poor people, just terrorized by this kind of wicked teaching. I think it's wicked teaching. Christians. God-fearing, Jesus-loving, save-me-from-my-sin Christians, who their greatest terror in life is people using this verse to say you can't come back because they know they were gone. They know they were here, they know they were gone, and now they want to go back, and they hear this verse, and they hear you say what you say from this verse, and you know what they think? They think they're going to hell now, and they're not Christians. And you're taking these good Christian people who just need gospel, they're ready for it, and you're abusing a text warning us that we should care about the Old Testament more in order to terrorize them of the very thing that we should be removing the terror of. Right? They're back. They live. They repent. It's possible. There's an ancient, uh, 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 an ancient church heresy about this, by the way. Uh, I can't remember which one it was. Now, uh, there was persecution. And when some people gave up their Bibles, and it wasn't Bibles per se, but their, their scriptures, their copies, and, uh, and stopped going to church during the persecution, on the other side, there was a group that didn't want them back in. No, you've fallen away. You can't get back in. And then Orthodoxy said, no, they can they can't. We're just going to warn them that that was a bad idea. Don't do that, right? So, all right, all right, all right. Enough of this. Enough of this. Enough of this. Well, let's see here. I am going to do a quick perusal. We're going to get out of that last week's stuff. That was good stuff, though. Oh, I want to get into this one today. 
Um, I got to check my time, 1035, check the side. Donatism, is it? I saw it. I'll give you credit. That was Bethany, the biologist, outwitting Pastor Fish this morning, calling the Jeopardy. What is Donatism? Oh, man. What, what do we call that? Ancient church heresies for 500, Alec. Um, Alex? Alex. Uh, and fix the stupid focus. Why is my picture so bad? I don't know. What else is going down over here? Oh, and uh, Nice was second. Nope. Got to hit that trigger faster, Nice. Bethany beat you to it. What is my church doing for coronavirus? We talked about that a little bit earlier. I'm going to give an announcement encouraging people to not shake hands, to put money in the back on the way out, to uh, if they are sick, not come to church, to if they are afraid, intinct. That's what I will do, not because I'm afraid, but because I have had allergies and or a cold. Uh, and so I will I will lead by intincting to show them, look, we can pretty much do this thing with only the pastor's hands being the thing we got to worry about. And if you can pull that off, we're going to be just fine. And also encouraging people, hey, look, don't commune. If you're worried about it, don't worry about it. You know, I mean, seriously, it's, it's you know, but we're going to keep coming to church as long as they tell us that we're allowed to. And in the moment when they tell us we're not allowed to, we will not. And we will obey our government for a time, at least. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and if people don't want to come, they don't have to come. They can watch the sermons online. You know, keep giving, please. Right. <laughs> watch the sermons online. And, uh, but I'll be here. Uh, and if I die, I die. That's the way it is. Uh, I mean, as if you're losing so much. I mean, geez. I'd miss out watching my kids grow up. But, okay, so I want to get to another thing here. Um, $500, right? That was not a super chat. <laughs> uh, I want to get to this longer letter that popped on the screen for a moment last week. And then uh, I I didn't have time. It was the end of the show. But it's a really well thought through thing. And so I would like to uh, to give us some of this here. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to read it in, in its entirety. Hang on. It says this. I have been fascinated by your discussions on the club-like mentality within the LCMS and wanted to share my experience. I apologize in advance for how long this may be. I grew up in a rural church in the Northwest for, that for all intents and purposes functioned just like a Midwestern happy German church where no one went to Bible class but random members showed up uh, for a potluck once a month and communion was a pesky thing that made service extra long every other week. Sound familiar, anybody? I, that sounds very familiar to me. Uh, though my family was a good confessional catechism and Athanasian Creed memorizing family, that's pretty good right there. My dad was the thoroughly mistreated pastor there. Ah, hmm. I ended up thinking that the mentality of the church was how Lutherans did church. And, well, that can be the case. No, this church has since all but closed and has a bi-monthly service with a retired pastor. Yeah, well, that sounds about right, too. Uh, fast forward to college in Seattle, where I found a fantastic Lutheran church with faithful confessional preaching and members. This church had been through its fair share of splits and about factions and other nonsensical arguments that tend to break up the country club, so, uh, so to speak, well before you joined. But this is kind of the result, which I think is kind of expected also and good when it happens. And so while I was attending there, there were no groups, cliques, or other club-like aspects of the church. It was there that I began to understand how the church is the body of Christ, both through receiving weekly communion and through hearing my pastor emphasize it every other week, every week from the pulpit. I believe part of the reason it was this way was because the people attending this church had to deal with every week, the visible attacks of the world around them, because again, Seattle, liberal West Coast. Uh, and so church was the place where they came for rest and to be refreshed by word and sacrament, as opposed to, say, sitting on voting committees. Now, I am recently married and live in the Midwest. I attend a church that theologically seems very solid, 
but it also uh, is one that seems to resolutely cling to the clubs and committee's mentality as if that is what it will keep them from going, you know, going under. Yeah, that's right. We, we, in, in our voting assemblies and committees, do we trust? Uh, the constant phrase I hear is, well, that's the way we've always done it. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's, that's right. It's not, you can say that about everything in America right now. <laughs> you know, homosexual marriage. Well, that's the way we've always done it um, for four years. <laughs> uh, five years? I mean, it's not even that long. It's crazy. Think about that. And now, you, now it's like it's like it runs the system with an iron fist. Uh, the constant phrase I hear is, we've always done it, yeah, which only frustrates me as that excuse was constantly used in my church and my youth to keep them from in, to keep them insulated and from reality and to prevent them from examining the rationale behind their practices. Yeah, well, well said there. I, I know the kinds of attacks and trials that Lutherans have faced and continue to face on both the coasts of the country is barreling or slithering. And you did say slithering. You said it. Slytherin. They're bad people. Slytherin toward the Midwest. And the churches here both seem unaware of that and utterly unprepared. Amen. Brother, uh, perhaps this is harsh criticism, but I think the reason why they run things the way they do and ask, mm, hold on. I think that churches need to examine the reason why they run things the way that they do. This is what I'm saying. Yes, you have caught my message, Right. You have caught my message. If you do not ask, why on earth, that was a cuss word, by the way, why on earth do you do it this way, then you are just doing it because you always have, and there's a good chance it's part of the problem because you haven't always. <laughs> you're, you're, we've always done it this way is maybe five to 15 years old, and it's probably a new idea that somebody randomly said we should do this, and now it's driving everything, and it was untested, and it really is a bad way to organize your culture <laughs> and your club and all this, right? And this, you have to do this about everything, everything in the church. Why do you do this the way that you do it? If you don't start asking these questions, um, the culture is just not going to support your little club anymore. It's going to go away. It used to just send people to your club so you could do whatever you wanted. It's not going to happen anymore. Um, so asking, and this question that he says right here, I think it's pretty good, right? Asking this question is great. That's why we're looking at this here. Boom. Is this sustainable? Uh-oh, Siri, don't do that to me. Did you just turn my sound off, Siri? Okay. Excuse me. Is this sustainable when our newest membership consists of young people commuting from 30 minutes away who don't have thousands of dollars to spend redoing the carpet or hosting expensive catered dinners? Yeah. Yeah. The commutes, the commutes, the commutes. No one's even thinking about anyone but themselves, and that's the problem. Every conversation I've ever had, including at my lovely congregation here, lovely people, we're doing well, and I am forcing this congregation on the uh, this conversation on them. I'm not trying to force the answers; I'm trying to force the conversation. But so many times, the the immediate response, if you took what the person said out of out of a context and kind of observe it, they're only thinking about themselves. They're they're but it would affect me, and I don't like that. That's the answer. Not what about us? There's not a lot of us in the thinking. Because for most LCMS congregations, there's no identity of the congregation as an us. People will talk about the us, but they don't mean the same thing. They're all talking about different us's. Right? Oh, we're all nice people here. We love each other. But they, they don't. And, and they're not really all friends with everybody. They don't even know each other. And most congregations, I, my, my guess is that the most knowledgeable layman in your average congregation, uh, if you're over 60 people, right, uh, over 75 people, uh, knows... Most everybody, but not everybody. The pastor 
generally knows everybody, but not everybody. If you got all these old roles and, you know, you can have voting members show up, you know, you haven't seen them for seven years kind of thing. Who are you? Yeah. Uh, so with that said, when you have this conversation, no one's thinking about a unified us in that. That is the congregation. They're thinking about their quilting group. They're thinking about their potluck group. They're thinking about just wanting worship to be a certain way, always exactly the same at a certain time, at a certain place, with certain temperature and certain hymns and a certain preaching, right? <laughs> like really, really specific, but in 45 minutes so I can go home and work or whatever. You have a million different identities. And until the congregation starts asking the question, why are we doing what we're doing? They can't figure out what they really are as a group. And until they do that, they're not going to have a way to talk about what it means to have that thing they actually are remain sustainable. And if the thing they actually are is not the word and sacraments of Jesus, who cares if they remain sustainable? They're better off closing at the end of the day. We're better off without them and then with the Christians that would have gone there going to a church that wants to stay open with the word of God. Uh, I don't know how else to sell it to you. Um, I mean, it's not a sales pitch. It's it's not a sales pitch. It's, it's life in a kingdom as opposed to uh, giving ourselves fully over to the entrepreneurial spirit of America, which is sort of what's happened through these, I don't know, haphazard, accidental bits of history. You know, the, the shift from Germany, Kuntz and I have talked about this, the shift from the German to English, post-World War One, World War II. We bought, we bought entrepreneurial church, whether we liked it or not. And was it Walter's fault? Walter was well before this. Could he have foreseen this? I don't think so. Hey, who cares? We're here now. We're here now, and we got to ask these questions long and hard. What does it mean? Are we members of a kingdom or members of America? Which one first? And you know, are we doing this just because we're Americans? Is it good for us to do that anymore? Is America helping us with this? Is, is America working to keep us Christian at all? It's, it's, I mean, they're not trying to kill us. But I just don't see them supporting our message anywhere, really. Like, anywhere at all. Which message? Don't kill people? Like, that one we still agree on mostly. Except the babies. I mean, just where? Authority? You know, father and mother? No. And so, so at what point do we say, hey, look, the culture hates what we believe top to bottom and is destroying anybody we give to them. Maybe we should stop just offering up our children. Nah. Call me nuts. I know. It's, it's like, but 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 15 years ago, Pastor Fiskett was mourning in America. You're right. Actually, it was 27, uh, 35 years ago. Dear heavens. 35 years ago. Who is just telling me? It was a pro-life issue. It was the Reagan administration, morning in America, and 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 I forget what it was, but there was this thing that happened, the pro-life cause. It's like it, it wasn't any better. It wasn't any better. It's like it, well, how did that happen at that time, right? Uh, well, we shouldn't trust in princes. I'm not dissing Reagan just to diss Reagan. I don't know. It doesn't matter that much to me at this point. What I care about instead is Christians realizing that. We're not under Reagan and we might be under Trump, but it's hardly America's Trump is hardly pro Orthodox Christianity. It's not. It's fine. It's Babylon. We got strong men fighting for power. OK, cool. But then we should probably not be like them. And that's what I don't see Lutheran congregations asking. I see them thinking, and I don't know who's convinced them, whether it's the commercials on nightly news or what has convinced them that it's still 1950. And that even though all this weird stuff is happening to their grandkids, that nothing's really changed. And, well, that brings us back to, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? What's changed? What's changed and what you don't think has changed? You say it's always been this way. The number of times here in Rockford where in the last two years I've had people tell me it's always been this way. 
And I discover within, you know, six months, oh, no, it really hasn't. Because here, my favorite is we've never done a candlelight Christmas Eve service. That was my favorite one. And I got that from multiple sources. So if one of you out here is a Rockford listener and you're like, well, I remember them. Good. You weren't one of the people who told me that we never had them before. <laughs> I got that from multiple sources. The first time I go, we're going to do it. You know, and we ordered some candles and, you know, got the little cheap paper things and whatever. And we're going to sing Silent Night because you know what? I can't believe you're the only LCM church I've ever been in that doesn't do Silent Night to Candles on Christmas Eve. Oh, the Christmas Eve service here. It was just so no one went. It's really weird. I think it was better this year. Anyhow. So, so. But then I discover, you know, in the, in, we close this building and we're, we're cleaning things up and we get out to the other. I discovered like these two boxes and they had to be 20 year old, maybe 30 year old boxes filled with candles. They're Christmas Eve candles. They're sitting right there. It's like, wait a minute. Always done it this way. Oh, you got me. You, you got me. You haven't always done it this way. Somebody changed it and you've always done it this way since then. That's what happened. It's just such a terrible argument, but you can't, the problem is you can't actually say that to them. When they say, we've always done it this way. You can't say that's a terrible argument. It, it will not win them over. Um, the better thing to do is to say, is it working? We've always done it this way. Is it working? Hey, why are you cutting off your arm? Well, I've always done it this way. Oh, that's nice. Is it, how's it working for you? Would you like to stop? Cause it might, the results might be negative. Oh, I've always eaten margarine. Why would I stop? It's never caused me any problems. <coughs> you know? Uh, speaking of which, as I hack, I can imagine. This is not a fun exercise, but without it, uh, I believe the young are becoming frustrated because many of us do not want a church that looks and acts like an antiquated country club. Yeah. And, and the old are frustrated that all the youth seem to want to do is change things. Yeah, there's that too. All this is to say, I think your observations are all too true in too many places, even where the church seems to be doing well at the moment. Thank you for your open and honest discussion on this matter. You are welcome. And I think we need to keep having this discussion on this matter for just this reason, because it is the case all over the country for all of us. There is rarely the congregation that is not dealing with this. Even if they're at the at a at a high point, you got your, for LCMS big. You got your hundreds and hundreds of members. Oh, we're so large, right? It's not large, uh, but you know, for us, that's really large. You got your hundreds and hundreds of members. But if you're not thinking about the next generation and handing this thing off, that hundreds and hundreds of members is still made up of a top-heavy baby boomer demographic with pockets filled with money by the greatest generation that they are spending and will not pass on to the the Gen X and millennial generation, who are also often giving at the peak of their capacity, or as they can, but will not be with nearly the disposable income across the board as families, as households. And so even if you're large and flying, if you're starting all these new building projects and you don't have plans to pay for it beyond, you know, well, we'll just keep growing, um, I, I hate to break it to you, but it's kind of like how how Concordia Portland closed. I mean, it's not entirely it, uh, but that's it. Like the boom, the boom of building, uh, the baby boomer money flow life. It's got a, it's got a half-life on it. It's ticking. It's ticking. And so those congregations that don't know who they are, that they are not clearly here for more than whatever the, the money is able to make happen. Uh, when the money's not able to make it happen, they are they are unprepared to then pivot. And if you're there because of the right thing, you can pivot. You can leave behind all sorts of stuff. You can leave behind a country. The Saxons did it. That's why we're here, right? A little bit. Uh, so, yeah. 
All right. Uh, let's see here. I was highlighting stuff you couldn't see. All right. We're going to do a couple more here from last week. I want to make sure I get these in. They may be a little bit quick. Let's pop that up here like that. Um, one of you wrote in and said, due to my foolishness with budget at this time, I cannot continue to support me. Oh, I'm sorry for this sin. Oh, that makes me feel so sad for you. Um, first off, please understand that while I appreciate your financial support, I hope that you can continue to support me without finances by still liking my show, right? Um, that's support. So, uh, but I completely understand how at times you think I can do this, I can do that, I can do this. And you get to realize, oh, I can't do all that. And if you got to pull back from Rev Fisk, I am going to toast you and say, thank you for being here while you could be. Please do not consider it sin, but if you would like me to forgive you, I will forgive you. I do forgive you. But I also think that by and large, failing to give me money is not a sin. I, I wish it was. I wish I could tell you with a straight face that failing to give Red Fisk money is sinful. <laughs> but that's just not the case. So thank you for the support while you could. Um, Mad Monday's feedback from you all. Wow, just finished the March 9th Mad Monday's email. It's truly real, like you wanted the space to be. Thank you for pastoring me in Australia where it is legit because currently there's no local Lutheran pastor. Thank you for all you shared and are going to share. Your YouTube video is a Reformation Still Relevant. Got me reading the Augsburg Confession again. Woohoo! Thank you, your blood of Christ, Sister Lynn. Amen, Lynn, and thank you for writing that in. Hello, Pastor Fisk. Also, Tina's going to say, um, I did read all of your fast-paced Mad Monday email today. Often I don't get through it all, sometimes too frenetic for me, yes. Uh, I guess probably because of what is going on in my life at the time, but today's writing caught me up. The most intriguing is your reference to the soul arrow, eight-year-old boy who's quickly growing up. For years I have viewed your sharings through all sorts of media. I'm happy that Pastor Cool threw out your name years ago has been a blessed time. May God continue to bless you, Tina. Thank you, Tina, as well. Yeah, the bit about the arrow. Well, this is just a recognition that I only get one son. And there's one video game I should like win at or try to win at. It's raising my son. <laughs> and I'm pretty confident that the main thing he needs is for me to look him in the eye and talk to him. And I can't do that when I'm doing something else. So, yeah. Uh, you know, my little retreat from computers and all that, uh, in part, it's not entire, but you know, in part is, is driven by that desire to spend more time with my kids. And it's not like I don't spend any, but I don't, I don't spend a lot of quality time. I work a lot of weekends. I work a lot of nights. Uh, that's part of the job. And that's part of what I do to make this kind of stuff happen as well. You know, it's Saturday morning right now. Most people on Saturday morning, they're not working. Right. Um, so, uh, so with all that said, and I want to keep doing what I do, uh, but, uh, the, the goal of my life is not outside of taking care of my family, right? And so that that's something that continues to matter to me and I continue to wrestle with how can I do a better job of it, especially because I got, again, four girls and one boy uh, who is now eight. And so he's really, really at a time where um, uh, he needs he needs me more than even the, the daughters do. Um, so with that said, though, yeah, the writing, it was interesting last week. I mean, that was kind of an a spur of the moment, three day thing to write something the way that I did. Um, this week should continue that a little bit. And we're, we're continuing to, to morph the newsletter. There's going to be some of the frenetic at the end. I'm really excited about it, but, but also we're going to really lead off with some writing from me and hopefully close off with some writing from me. If I can ever get over my fear of writing fiction again, Oh, for pity's sakes, it's because of the back work I have to do to get started. And I have two books I want to write for Pete's sake, and I'm fighting over them in my head, and maybe they'll both be the same book. I don't know. But from you, what have you said? Uh, I have been reading Skin in the Game by Talib. 
I love discussing Talibi. I do too. Although I want to read him and discuss him rather than just discuss him. But I uh, have read him for years. See, I haven't done that. I've only listened once and kind of gotten into one. Um, I was so glad to hear Lutheran Rev is reading him too. His ideas, his mind, his framework is fascinating. Yes, indeed. Uh, his framework is very refreshing is what I would say. Uh, he's a Lebanese Orthodox Christian. Yes, it externally at least. Uh, so I know of uh, where he, I sort of know where he's coming from in the following statement, but I wanted to know your thoughts. Does ambiguity, does ambiguity, that's not how you pronounce that word. Does ambiguity parallel paradox? That is a tongue twister. Ambiguity parallel paradox. Do you find value in having a pagan mind? Chapter two of the most intolerant winds, page 82. <laughs> Or is it chapter two, most intolerant, but it's chapter two of what? Uh, the other one you mentioned earlier, Skin of the Game? <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, is a quote here from page 82. My heuristic, that's a big word, is that the more pagan, the more brilliant one's mind, and the higher one's ability to handle nuances and ambiguity, purely monotheistic religions such as Protestant Christianity, Salafi Islam, or fundamentalist atheism, accommodate literalist and mediocre minds that cannot handle ambiguity. Um, well, first, Talib throws out lots of stuff that's just like wide ranging, right? I mean, really broad brush kind of stuff. And so broad brushing, I don't know that I disagree with him at all. He does not seem to have ever really engaged Orthodox Lutheranism at its kind of pinnacle performance, uh, which is not, um, uh, repristination solely, but is fully equipped to engage him in his framework like a ninja uh, and and uh, handle almost everything he's wrestling with in a way he's never engaged, I think. I think our framework and his are not so different, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, kind of like the Stoics and Christianity, Orthodox Christianity. Uh, not so different in a lot of ways. But so what he's, what he's saying here when he says, you know, monotheistic religions, purely monotheistic religions such as Protestant Christianity— or Salafi Islam. Okay, so he just said that Protestant Christianity is monotheistic the same way Salafi, Salafi Islam is. It's not. It's Trinitarian. There is a significant difference. But if you look at, you know, um, baby Jesus is my favorite Jesus, American Protestant Christianity, they are a monotheistic religion. Or a full pagan religion. I'm not sure. Right? But they act like a monotheistic religion. They ask, act like uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Deism is what he's really talking about here. And I agree with him to some extent. Now, I don't know, though, when he says the pagan mind, that he's using that word the way I use that word. Because I use that word to mean the one who worships nature. I think he means to say there's more than one spiritual power. Uh, I think that's what he's getting at. Uh, and in this, then... Uh, how would I say this? I don't believe he's saying that, you know, you know, like someone who worships a demon is a good thing, but someone who, who is aware that there's more than just God and material, right? Uh, that they're able to, to reckon with nuance better. Hey, look, bread, wine, body, blood, Jesus, God, man, right? Um, there's more here than just God and material. There is nuance, Right. And the one who can't handle the nuance says it can't be. It's impossible. Right. And, and that's what he's critiquing. And I think that's fair. Whereas we as supernaturalists, uh, Orthodox Lutherans are supernaturalists. I, I think we are satisfying what he's getting at when he talks about the, the word pagan there. But we're not pagans, but we're using different meanings for that word pagan. I'd want to really define that word in his is his vernacular a bit more because I mean, he technically would be a monotheistic Christian because as an Orthodox 
a Trinitarian, you know, he would fit in that. And he's not advocating against himself, um, I don't think. I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, but but does ambiguity parallel paradox? I'm not even sure I know what that means. But I do know this. Right. Ambiguity in knowing things is unavoidable. And that the more you think you can avoid it, the more you think you're God. Therefore, the more brittle your worldview gets. It gets brittle. It gets easy to break. A single stone can crack it, right? Whereas if you're comfortable with the ambiguity of not being God and allowing and knowing uh, that there are things you will not understand that God does understand, like Hebrews chapter six, (laughs) uh, you know, um, well, then there's room for your God to be bigger than you and you can submit. Ambiguity and submission go hand in hand with each other. They go hand in hand. And Americans do not do submission well, I would have to say. All right. Some more from John the Sacramentarian. Yeehaw. Haven't finished SMC at the time of this writing. We'll listen to the whole thing again or on a walk. You mentioned me by name. Got very excited. Well, John, the Sacramentarian. Make me think of how I haven't checked. Super Chats. No one's jumping in. We're good. Uh, but, but, but. You mentioned me by name. I got excited and then mentioned the main reason not to be Lutheran. Uh-huh. I got excited for half a second when I first read this, and then I read it, and my head just went down. And God bless you, John. We can be buddies. We can be cigar buddies. But, um, yeah. I'm sure, he says, the golden calf which leapt from the fire for Aaron was a good reminder to the people that they were worshiping and praying to Yahweh. Now, sarcasm on, right? Um, After all, Aaron said it was Yahweh. Mm Mm-hmm. It was to help them remember the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. Uh, no, not really. It's not what it was for. It was so that they would forget about the God of fire on the mountain and Moses, this guy who knows what's happened to him, and they would have a God like they had in Egypt. So you're already changing the text to fit your story, but that's okay. Uh, what's the little creativity in our religion ever done? Now, you're right about that. Innovation is a dangerous gift. It's a gift should be guarded carefully and pruned with great regularity. Um, It's only an idol if you make it an idol. What does that even mean? I think that's your point, but again, yeah, so how is that an argument? Uh, And the fire which Nadab and Abihu brought was perfectly fine on a normative principle of worship. No, it wasn't. What are you talking about? So again, who are you arguing against? You're not arguing against me yet. You're arguing against yourself a little bit. Uh, God commanded them to bring fire other times. Uh, Why not be super devoted above and beyond? No, 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 no. God commanded them to do exactly what he said and nothing more, and they ignored that. That you're completely don't don't miss that they brought unauthorized fire they made up worship in a covenant that had just been consecrated with lots of blood and fire and smoke saying do it exactly like this and you'll live forever and have superpowers do it exactly like this and you'll live forever and have superpowers and and they're like oh exactly not like this so okay this is also you can talk about iconoclasm you're going way afield here, my friend. Um, God commanded them to bring fire other times. No, no, no. Yeah, I'd call those guys who defile the high places, cut down the Asherah poles, Iconoclast two, the ones who cut down the Asherah poles? Really? The guys who cut down... Oh, oh. Uh, uh, well, you're saying you're saying that I would call the guys who cut down Asherah poles Iconoclast? I'm not sure I understand the sentence. I definitely think the guys who cut down the Asherah poles were awesome. And uh, risking their lives, I'm not sure I'd do it in every context. Um, uh, I, I haven't gone over to the front court of Rome and knocked over their pylon yet. <laughs> a pylon, their uh, uh, whatever that thing is called. You know, the Vatican, you seen that thing? 
dear heavens. Um, I'm, I'm no conspiracy theorist, I swear. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm, the radicals who went to the high places were radical, right? It's all about solar scripture until it's time to do the solar scripture of things. It's a snarky attack, probably because I'm still timid, too timid to say the word idolatry. I would greatly treasure a counter argument, snarky or otherwise, against the iconoclast position. Right. So against the, what's iconoclast? Iconoclasts are those who think that the second commandment is statues are bad. That, that's what an iconoclast is. And so what they do is within Christianity, they do not allow for statues. Hence the crucifix, bad. Right. Crazily, my hearsay understanding from way back in the day is that some of this has to do with how Rome doesn't mind statues and the East only does the icons. But if you want to really get into legalism, you can chase that thread for no reason. Um, the, the iconoclast position really is no graven image. But see, this is just it. You end up splitting hairs immediately. Do you mean no graven image? Or do you mean no image you might bow down to and worship as though it were a god? Right? Only statues? Or do, in fact, icons, right, flat images, count as well? I'll continue the question. I'll come back and deal with it. I have heard iterations of the counterargument is crazy. Luther had the normative principle. Uh, therefore, we do too, QED. Um, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, and also, well, if you can't make a picture of Jesus, you can't make any art whatsoever. Can you draw a flower? Well, hold on. No, that's the point. That, that, so you just kind of dismiss that, I think. Um, the point is not that you can't draw pictures of Jesus. If you're going to say that the second commandment is no graven images, it's no graven images. That's, this is my answer to this. I, I'm sorry if you don't like it. Turn off your TV. If, if you want to make the second commandment about not looking upon the things of creation so as to potentially worship them, turn off the TV. Stop taking pictures, you hypocrite. You really want to be an iconoclast? Be one. Go have a room with no images on it. You know who does this? You know who does this? Muslims. Now, I think they still have their TVs on. The TV's going to win them over. The, the, Kronos, through his son, Wade in the Smith, Waylon the Smith, otherwise known as Hephaestus, and his technology, he is winning the day. He is making religions fall left and right because we don't even think twice about this glowing screen of death. I love it, by the way. I'm never going to give it up, I don't think. <laughs> but, but, prior to that, and the, and the smartphone in, in Islamic culture, hardcore Islamic religion, you don't get to draw a picture of a flower. Dome of the Rock, you ever seen the inside of the Dome of the Rock? There's there's such marvelously good hypocrites because they wanted to have art in their building that they drew with texts of the Quran everywhere and things that could never actually be images of something like a cow, right? Uh, is swirls instead, formless art of words. It's gorgeous and hypocr it's hypocrisy. It's the same hypocrisy. You're trying to get around the law. If the law is you're not supposed to make some other image by man's hands to convince you that it's in God's place, then you're not supposed to do it. And all the images will become that eventually. Now, the answer for the Lutherans is, I, I don't know about Luther's normative principle. I have no idea about that. Our answer is that the commandments are what the commandments are. And it's pretty straight up. You're not supposed to have any other gods, including the kind you would make a graven image of and bow down to it and worship it. And frankly, that would go for your TV too. It'll go for your TV and your bank account and your car. All these things. Car's a graven image, by the way. Now all the more. It's, it's a graven image of an Autobot. Are you kidding me? Jeez. If you have a car, you worship the Autobots. So do you see what I'm really getting at here, though? 
like, if you're going to be against images, because you think that's what the Bible says, well, then you need to be against images, because you think that's what the Bible says. And if you are not going to be against images, because you think that's what the Bible says, then you cannot be against statues. <laughs> it's just... You know, it's uh, you got to have one way or the other. I like the East approach to this as well, recognizing that Christ, the creator, when he incarnate, when he enfleshed himself, he is the image, the icon, the, the living statue of the invisible creator and his image. If nothing else, we don't have a, a picture of his face. You can go shroud a turn if you want. You probably do, don't you? Do you, John? Do you think the strata turns a real thing? Do you like that picture? Think that that actually is what Jesus looked like? I don't, by the way. But you fine. But that's like that's that's icon. Uh, I, that is idolatry. That is iconolophy, <laughs> right? That's not iconoclasm. You got to get rid of that thing. You got to burn that thing. I think of all the things we don't have. A, we don't have a plaster mask of Jesus' face. What we do have is the image of the invisible God as a man doing what he needed to do, because you don't need a face to show a crucified body on a cross. The one place that in theory could not be an idol, although we can make it an idol if we want to. You can make an idol out of anything. But the one place that's awful hard to make an idol out of is, is the crucifix of Jesus Christ. It's awful hard to make an idol out of that one. I'm trying right now. I'm actually touching mine. I kissed it the other day. I really did. Because when I look at the crucifix, I don't feel ashamed that's a really powerful thing. And I don't think it's the wood. I really don't. I guess so. If on the last day, Jesus is like, well, you should have been ashamed all along. I didn't, in fact, save you. And it was my death that you kept thinking about when you looked at that crucifix and praying toward me in, this, in my ascension as the Trinitarian uh, mediator between God and man, none of that counted uh, because it was made of wood and had my face on it. It's total blasphemy. You should have you should have read the commandments from Sinai, Jonathan, and ignored the, the New Testament a little bit more. <laughs> you know, so I, iconoclasm. I don't know. It's what it like all the danger, dangerous paths of pietism, like all the dangerous paths of legalism. It seems like a clever biblical one verse argument until you take it to its actual, eventual logical conclusion. If God said, don't make a graven image in a time when the only way to make an image was a graven image, unless you're going to draw on the sand. Well, then he said, don't make an image. And then he turned around and he didn't tell him to make a golden cow, but he did tell him to make a whole bunch of like pomegranates, some angels. They were supposed to sew a bunch of them too. They sewed them into some material. They made statues. They, they made uh, statues of, of like bowls holding up a basin of water called the, the sea. So God made them make a whole bunch of graven images. He put them in like in the actual Holy of Holies. Two cherubim on top of the ark. Two cherubim. On, so clearly God did not actually mean no images. And he didn't even really mean no graven images. He meant no false gods. That's our argument. There's no normative principles. Don't go off in some philosophical categorization. It's really, really straightforward. It's just what the Bible says. Don't have any false gods. And the real like dark secret is that the moment you decide you're going to make it a law that you can't have any statues or any pictures or any whatever, 
And you start distinguishing, I already went over this, you start distinguishing, you know, where you're going to draw your own lines. Well, it doesn't count if it's not at church, so it doesn't count. Okay, you made that up. <laughs> so have fun with it. You made it up. You know, if you're going to, if you're going to go in that route, oh, I lost my other thought. That's too bad. Uh, if you're going to go in that route, if you're going to go in that route, um, then you're ultimately creating your own form of idolatry. You're creating a good work that isn't a good work. So you think it's a good work to remove pictures or statues from churches, especially if those those works were works of art that were donated by faithful, pious people to tell the story of our history, to bind us together as a people against the world. And you think it's a good work to remove that history. And that that, in fact, justifies you. I'm going to call that idolatry. John, I appreciate it, man. And Cafe Solo, thank you for the super chat. Thanks for the SM Chill. You are welcome as always. Oh, but he's going to help me out here. Also with QED is an initialism of the Latin phrase quod erit demonstrandum, literally meaning uh, what was to be shown. Interesting. I don't really know what that helps me much, but it, it hopefully does. All right. We got at least, oh my goodness. Excuse me. I don't really want to answer the next question, but I'm going to anyway, because I don't want to delete it either. Let's see. Nope. I got to switch to this. I got to switch to this. And I'm going to do this. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, that was marvelous. All right. However, in reading, kind of in the middle of a sentence here, aren't we? I, I realize how bizarre it is for Lutherans to not allow their, uh, their baptized children to commune. So here's, I mean, you can go, you can see where this is going already, right? How bizarre it is for Lutherans not to allow their baptized children to commune. In your own confession, it is explained that the only thing required to receive communion is to believe it. That, just like baptism, it's received through faith. You're, you're kind of working like a person with logic, mostly. I've been there. A lot of us have. But you're, you just made a big assumption in your question, and you're wrong. Uh, so that everything else kind of will, will go back to that assumption. Um, but you say that children who are baptized... By faith, see, no, 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 I don't say children are baptized by faith. Um, can't commune by the same faith. See, you, you've you've really misunderstood what I'm saying. Um, uh, it even ends by saying of children, for since they are baptized and received into the Christian church, they should also enjoy it. Yes, they should. They should grow up and enjoy it. They should be taught it, right? So we would insist that we teach them the supper and that they, I uh, cannot type, um, and that they receive it at the soonest time that they can confess it. Because the supper really calls for confession of faith. Um, so what's the reason for making them wait? Um, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 is pretty clear that you need to know what you're doing while you're doing it. That's what. Um, is it established somewhere else in the Book of Concord? I'm befuddled. Well, yes, it's established in Scripture. So please understand the Book of Concord does not trump Scripture. The book, Can't talk, I'm sorry. Please understand that the Book of Concord does not trump Scripture. The Book of Concord is there because we believe it says what Scripture says. But Scripture often says more than one thing about a topic, and there is nuance and ambiguity in these things. And so understanding them needs to be taken on a topic-by-topic, Scripture-alone basis, in which the Book of Concord is a witness to what Scripture says, but it is not what Scripture actually says. So you can't pit it against it. And especially you can't pit, forgive me here, a, a single reading, have you read it twice, this Book of Concord section? Because you have not really understood baptism to begin with, based on what you've said. Okay, now it could be wrong, but there's more. Okay, that's my point. Is There's more, and you're missing the bigger picture. You're in the trees, 
and you need to see a forest here. All right. So one of the key things is to recognize that we do not treat baptism and the Lord's Supper as if they are two of the same thing, because there is no category for sacraments in the Bible. There is no systematic for understanding the sacraments in the Bible. Any attempt to do this as a category, as a system, is something we're doing as reasonable people, and that's fine, in order to help us understand what the Bible says. But at the end of the day, what the Bible says is the thing that should be driving what we actually believe. And so if we find the Bible talks about two different things, completely different things, that are both gifts from Jesus, which he has attached certain specific and particular to each one, different promises to these gifts. And we can discern that they are unique in a similar way from many other things. Namely, these particular gifts and promises come with physical emblems or elements or attaches or I don't know what's avatars. We observe that and we say, oh, look, they are both supernatural miracles in the Latin sacramentum mysteries. Okay. So we call them mysteries. That doesn't mean they're the same mystery. And your question is treating them like they are because you're coming at this categorically and systematically rather than exegetically, rather than from what the scriptures say about the thing. So I'm glad you're looking at what we say we believe about the thing, but you can't then take that and pit it against what we say about another thing without going back to scripture on your way there and asking about, well, are these even apples and apples? Is comparing baptism to the Lord's Supper like comparing apples to apples, or is it like comparing apples to oranges? And I'm going to contend it's kind of like comparing apples to oranges. Because you have to take them not as the sacraments that we go and we find in these places in the Bible. You have to take them as these places in the Bible that give us these other things that we later call sacraments. And one of them, it says, is for your children. Acts chapter 2. One of them, it says, is a parallel to circumcision, which happened to eight-year-old males. Colossians chapter 2. And, and this same one is pretty clearly done to entire households of faith and to anybody and everybody who comes into the church, both in the Bible, every time anybody comes into the church, and also uh, after the Bible. It's really clearly testified to. Huh? Um. Do you have Jesus saying, go baptize babies? No, you have him saying, go baptize all nations. And nobody ever doesn't. So it, it's, it's kind of like the burden of proof is a little on the one who says we shouldn't to show us where all of these things, where it's happening and where babies are evidently included in the normal reading of the word nations. No one says, go attack the nation, but ignore the babies, right? Now, maybe you don't want to kill the babies, but it's like the babies are part of the nation. When you're born in the U.S., you are a citizen, right? So you have that, okay? I don't think that's the end-all be-all here, um, but, but you have that, that this arises as something that he defines for you. And then he defines it as a birth point. It's called a new birth. It's a renewal, right? It's, it's a new beginning. Even the, the, the uh, if you're immersed, the going under the water and coming out again is a new birth from death. So the resurrection's all tied to this. All this stuff is very specific. None of that is said of the Lord's Supper. It is not said to be the new birth in water and the Spirit at all. Okay? So so it's a birth. Now, if we're going to talk about things like birth, by the way, do babies have things to do with birth? Yes. Babies have no problem being born. They can do this. If we're going to talk about eating, how do babies do with eating? 
especially lunch with a glass of wine. Not as well, right? Yeah. So it's kind of understood that if you're going to have a meal of bread and wine in which everybody gets to have some, the babies probably aren't getting any. That's just straight up reality. That's how life works. It doesn't take a lot. You have to go out of your way to change reality to give communion to babies. In fact, you have to turn it into mush or maybe not even give them the bread. Right? So, so you got that to begin with without, here we are again, there is no thing in scripture that says go do this. It simply says things like this communion is a participation in Jesus, that a person should understand the body of Jesus and what that means here now, and so partake of it, that this is unity with each other, that's a proclamation of his death until he comes. There is clear discussion of a mental awareness of the act going on in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and it is mandated that you should discern the body in this act. And in that regard, I don't think we have to be like like Nazi legalists about the entire thing, but by and large, we shouldn't commune anybody who can't say, I would like communion. I think it's Jesus. Yes, it's Jesus. Amen, it's Jesus. Give me communion. What age it happens in? Well, that's where we're in a little bit of a debate in the Missouri Center right now. But I can pretty much tell you it doesn't happen the moment the baby's born. Just like you don't feed a baby the moment they're born with whole food. Huh? Uh, and so similarly, uh, when you're baptized, you're baptized. Uh, you're born of water and the Spirit. When you are ready to eat, you come to communion. For some people, that's the same day. And for some people, it's not. I, 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 I'm going to come back and talk about baptism and faith, though. But I want to make sure I acknowledge the Super Chat. Uh, Arsant. Ars, I like your picture. I can't pronounce you well, though. Arsant Angel Fire. I'm coming from an evangelical background to Lutheran doctrine. What's the role of evangelism in the Lutheran church? How should we evangelize? That's awesome. I'm going to have you on pause for a second right here. We'll just leave you up here in the corner for a sec. We'll come back to you because I want to touch on, I want to touch on this bit here. You say children who are baptized by faith can't commune by the same faith. Children are not baptized by faith, nor do we commune by faith. If by faith, you mean this is where the power of the event comes. And I think that's what you mean. You think that baptism is contingent upon faith when it is not. Baptism gives the promise to be believed as faith. Faith believes the promise which baptism speaks. Baptism is the source of faith. There is no saving faith without, ultimately, baptism, since baptism is Jesus. So even if Jesus saves you without water, it still is a washing of regeneration in him at the end of the day. So when he then attaches that to actual water, it's not your faith that makes the water work. It is the word of Jesus that makes the water work. So they're not baptized by faith. It's for faith. It's into faith. It's for the sake of faith. Maybe they come because of faith. Adults definitely do. But it is faith that's not the power that makes the thing run. Jesus is the power that makes the thing run. Faith is what receives what Jesus does, or unbelief is what does not. So when we commune by faith, we're not making anything happen there either. Quite the opposite. In faith, we are receiving what we are given, a common union with Jesus. So then, why can't someone who can believe in baptism also believe in the Lord's Supper? Um, well, it would come down to what are the promises being given and what is the level of belief entailed. So the promise given by the Father to you in baptism is that you've been washed. Whether you believe it or not, that promise is given to you. You've been washed, and you can believe it right then, or you cannot. And the question is, how much can a baby understand that in order to believe it if we're going to tie faith to the intellect? 
And I'm going to say, I don't know and I don't care that much. But if I had to take a random shot in the dark guess, I'd say the baby understands almost none of it verbatim and all of it emotionally. Because babies understand everything emotionally. Because that's their learning language, but they certainly get emotions. And so when the father of the infinite universe, if it's infinite, the infinite father of the finite universe, when he speaks to the baby through water and the word, I'm going to just go ahead and trust he has as much power as a mother does speaking to the baby uh, when she cuddles the baby. And so the baby has every ability to believe as much trust in God's providence and care for that child in salvation as God wants the baby to have. And if the baby doesn't have more than I think would be enough to call faith, then I'm wrong about faith and God is right about faith. But then communion is again a different thing. Communion is not a promise that you're washed. Communion is also sort of a commandment that you would take, that you would eat, that you would discern, that you would believe, that you would proclaim, that you would confess. It is indeed a much more mature act. And for that reason, the church has always seen these things as distinct. Uh, I think I, to make the case that infant communion has always been there is a, a tedious task. Um, but my point is not, again, to, to, to speak against infant communion. I think I already did that sufficiently. I'm more trying to say that the, the fact that faith is involved in both baptism and the supper, the fact that both are established by Scripture does not mean that they both work for your faith in the same way. That's an assumption you would have to read into this argument to make this case. And what we try to do instead is take exactly what it says about each one of them and just apply it all the way across the board and let it be what it is. And don't worry about it too much. But it's, it's pretty clear then that we should be communing people who want to commune. And it's really hard to tell that with a baby. But at some point, if the parents teach the kid, I mean, it happens pretty quick if you teach the kid. The trick is, are the congregations ready to deal with it? That's a whole different issue. That's why we're arguing about it inside. Um, uh, last one from you out there in, in Listerland officially this morning. Um, hey, brother, I know you're busy. I'm going to come back to Arsenal Angel Fire. I have not lost you. Um, I, I know you're busy, but I hope you have time to answer a quick question from me. I grew up Lutheran LCMS, but currently go to Southern Baptist Church. I have felt drawn back to the Lutheran faith. However, I'm unable to convince my wife to become a Lutheran. Is it possible to be a Lutheran without being part of a Lutheran church? No. Yes, no. I mean, you can be one who believes right and goes against conscience and struggles with that, or you can be one who decides to go with your conscience. Uh, your conscience ought to dictate to you, especially as the leader of your home, that you have an honest conversation with your wife in which you say, hey, honey, this is really, really challenging, but here's where I'm at. This is what I believe now. We need to work this out together. But I know that if I do not have feeding for my faith, as I understand it, I will suffer and it will cause harm to us. And I don't want that. And so I need to find a way to go to a Lutheran church. That's the conversation you should have. And if she doesn't want to go, don't make her go. And if it's, we always were supposed to go together. Well, you're right. We were. And Jesus comes to set a sword between husband and wife sometimes. And we're both Christians still, so we can talk it through and we can work on it. We can keep having conversations. We can go to different churches and then come home and talk about it. I have no, by the way, I don't think it's a good idea to go to different churches as a couple. I think it's a terrible idea. I apologize for that. I should have turned the mic down. I think it's a terrible idea. However, I think it's a better idea to go to different churches if you actually believe differently than to try to go to the same church and pretend you don't. Right. So you got to deal with, deal with the cards you got. Um, you are not going to force anybody to become a Lutheran. You're not going to force your wife to become a Lutheran. Uh, the, but what you can do is demonstrate that your conviction is such that you've got to do this thing, that this is your manhood and the rest of your life and the rest of eternity and your king. And you're going to follow where your king tells you to go. And, um, but you want to do so in a way that's respectful to the bride he's given you, who's your sister in Christ, who you need to care for. 
So you want to make sure her needs are met as well. Make sure she's not, nothing impinges on her needs. Um, But then say, this is what I, what I believe I need to go somewhere where I can get the supper straight up. You know, is, is that, it's that simple. She won't like it necessarily, but this is where marital relationships have to deal with things that one or the other person doesn't like. And at some point you have to come to terms with that and figure out how to work together uh, to have both people get what they want, even though they're different things. Sad if that's religion, right? But at the same time, better to be honest about it than to suffer your religion being what suffered, uh, uh, persecuted in a sense, not really persecuted, but um, your devotion and spirituality is going to suffer as a result of this. And why would you, why would you do that on purpose? The suffering you will endure in the conversation with your wife as you grow closer together and walk together in spirituality will be far more valuable than the suffering you endure having to listen to heterodoxy and being bothered by it week in, week out and not getting fed. It's, it's, it's that easy. Um, and you will find, I mean, go find uh, Matt Richard, Dr. Matt Richard, PM Notes. You can find him. Um, he will have, or he has, if you reach out to him, I'm sure he'll get it to you. A, uh, uh, it wasn't doctoral. It was pre-doctoral work he did on coming out of evangelicalism into Lutheranism and the experiences people have and yours is a lot like theirs. And the long and short is this, the longer you tarry, once you know you're caught, the longer you tarry outside a Lutheran church, the more angry and frustrated you will be and the less joy you will find in your conversion process. The sooner you go, the more glad you're going to be you did it. Um, you will be, you will do it either way because election is election. It's not going to let go of your, your, your mind, your noggin. Uh, but, uh, the, the sooner you just listen to that election taking place in this way, you know, that providence moving you in this way, um, the better off you're going to be. And my guess is eventually, um, your wife, your wife comes along with you, but it's going to take a long time and a lot of patience and making sure she knows she's not being forced. Um, so kind of similar, but different. Ars not, ar, ars not. Yeah. <laughs> You're not ars not. That's mean. Arsant. Arsant angel fire. Uh, sounds like some sort of like, like dragon wizard. Arsant angel fire. <laughs> you know, um, I'm coming from an evangelical background to Lutheran doctrine. What is the role of evangelism in the Lutheran church? How should we evangelize? Now, my friend, thank you for hanging out. Um, I am so distraught by my lack of HD camera. Um, all right. So I'm, I'm leaning back to think about this one because this sucker is not easy because you, you just, you asked it with the word that has again, too many meanings. It's, um, evangelism as a word. It, it maybe only has four to five real meanings. But I think it, it kind of has like millions too. So when we say evangelism, it's like if I say dog, you might think of a poodle and I might think of like a, I don't know, a husky or whatever, but we still are thinking of dogs. When you say evangelism, it's like when you say youth group, you got no clue what people are talking about and what they really think is going to be going on at these things. And you're going to find all manner of just, just completely different things. There'll be some similarities, maybe like evangelism is going to involve humans talking, <laughs> But I mean, I've seen that word used to describe so many different things. And then historically, the word does not mean what the Protestant American uses it to mean, which is conversion. So Lutherans talk about conversion. We don't talk about evangelism historically. We talk about conversion. Um, evangelism would simply be preaching, 
right? When you go to church, you go to church to be evangelized by the pastor. When the pastor forgives your sins, you've been evangelized. When you say, he is risen, or alleluia, yeah, I know it's Lent. And when you say those things, you are evangelizing. You're proclaiming the good news of he who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You are speaking the evangel, the gospel. Now, what, what Protestantism did was it took, and it really was revivalism, took that gospel and they tied it to a sales pitch, single event, close the deal, American business pyramid scheme tactic for mission. And they called that evangelism. And now it dominates what most people think or talk about or the categories they use to face the issue of conversion. Now, I, as a Lutheran, I am really, really concerned about conversion. I think it is tremendously important that Lutherans stop converting to other religions. We're terrible at it. Our kids are doing it. They're going to atheism. They're going to paganism. They're going to other types of Christianity. And we're even training them to do it because we do not train our kids to stop converting. We don't train them to want to convert others to us. So there's some serious issues there. But this has a lot to do not with Lutheranism, but with the insularity of church bodies in a dying American age and a post-Constantinian culture in which we were able to over-support too many buildings for the amount of actual Christianity going on, probably, in some of our churches. And this goes across the board denominationally. So, with, with all that being said, again, Missouri Synod Lutherans have a good portion of people who are concerned about, say, evangelism. Almost every Missouri Synod church is going to have an evangelism committee because that's what you need if you want to get people converted is a committee. Um, they get an evangelism committee that doesn't really do much, maybe puts on a potluck or does a food drive or who knows what because we don't really know what the word means. But... This is only because we've stopped talking about conversion and listen to this bad word evangelism that frankly does not convey what we need to have going on. We need people who do in fact evangelize, that is speak about Jesus and his goodness and what he's done for us. We should all be doing this all the time to each other. We don't do that nearly enough. There's not enough evangelism, gospeling going on between father and child, between husband and wife, between pew sitter and pew sitter. The only guy generally talking is the pastor. Maybe in Bible study, you got more people to pipe up. We need that. We need that evangelism. But, but conversion, the one that really, I'm most, the reason I'm having the insularity conversation in my own head is because I care about conversion. And I don't just care about taking, we got this giant, mediocre, money-sucking pit of a mega church, two or three of them, right over that direction. They're all fighting each other for the same corners in town. And, uh, oh, I had a reason. I had a reason. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not, my goal is not to convert them to Lutheranism. Although, frankly, there are a lot of them who need it and they're starving for it. And we've had a few find us and they're going to be more, I think. I want them to convert. I, I apologize. This is my apology for conversion. It's what I do, right? And, and many of you who come and find me and listen to me here, that's the, that's the category you're in is former evangelical, former evangelical, which doesn't necessarily mean evangelizing or Jesus. <laughs> um, so, so there is that, but, but where I really care about conversion more right now, where I think we need to hit it hard and I don't think anybody's doing it enough. Although frankly, the evangelists, evan the evangelicals maybe still are doing more of this It is is the non-Christian. I think there are a lot of non-Christians. I think there are Christians who are ignorant too. I think there are people who say I'm a deist, but they say the word Christian, but they mean deist. I don't count them as Christians. 
I don't know. I'm not going to judge their heart. But I know that if you talk to them, they're going to talk about God and the sky and the clouds and the flowers, and they're not going to talk about Jesus. And so I want them to know about Jesus. I want to convert them to a, to Christianity, actually, to Jesus, right? That matters. And, and in this, then, Lutherans have a strong history of believing in the necessity of this conversion and in its process. We just don't talk about it in the category of evangelism, nor do we make it a sales pitch that you believe you can clinch the deal with, with some sort of like super spiritual prayer mojo that you pull out, right? Uh, it's the other way around. We proclaim what Jesus has done in the belief that those words, being superpowers as they are, are going to rattle around and do something to you. And we want to do that well and rightly. We want to do it with, with orthodoxy, that is with straight praise, but we also want to do it with what doxology you know, with, with, with glorious actual praise that we would care about our God and our religion and speak of our God and our religion as if he was super awesome. You don't have to use the word super awesome, whatever it takes to say true, right? True. So our categories, again, though, that are helpful for this conversion, we deal with what, what it means to be a sinful man, depraved, to believe that the ones you're talking to don't want to be converted, that they're only going to be converted by the narrative of Jesus Christ as a historical event, that this conversion means their forgiveness and they're going to start to hunger for it. So when they hear about his death and resurrection and the pending judgment, they're going to want forgiveness and you're able to then tell them that's what he did. That's what baptism and the supper guarantee and give. Welcome to the community of the faith. Let's start echoing together. It's all one big thing though. And we also recognize you never stop converting to this. Every morning you're reconverted. Every week, you're reconverted. Every year, you're reconverted. Every day, it's new to find the mercies of God in your life. Father, Son, Spirit, it's good to remember, right? So in that, the, the very paltry and weak and like atrophied category of evangelism as door-to-door -door salesman of Jesus with a toaster, um, I just don't think that category holds enough for the conversation I want to have about this thing. Because to me, conversion has nothing to do with the tactics for not, how do we figure out enough to do the right kind of, it has a lot more to do with, do we even believe this stuff anymore? Cause we don't act like it on a number of levels. So Forrest Gaffney says that has to be a short clip. I hope so. I don't even know what I said. Oh, the icons. Well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. Caleb says, I found it interesting at the LCMS Church I-10 that most of the young adults there are converts to Lutheranism and a lot of the young adult kids of the Boomer members have left but are still in the area. Yeah. Why is that? We've always done it this way. Really? Have we? Just like this? I don't think so. I don't think so. So that brings me through. Let's see here. There's one more thing. Oh, yeah. I actually got through all of that stuff. What are we looking at? What's our time? 10.30. We are... Right about at two hours. I'm going to hang out for a moment more and uh, follow you all in the comments and uh, see what else has been going on over there. But again, uh, we'll be pulling some of these for next week as well. Um, right. So in response to Arsant, uh, Yamami posts, uh, you can't post the links, right? But if you search for Becoming Lutheran Quantitative Analysis Summary, that's the that's the Matt Richard thing, right? <sighs> hey, Brian, if you get a chance... Um, uh, would you email that link to me? Uh, I want to get that on my website because it's just worth, I, I, I recommend it often enough. Um, ba -ba -ba. Uh, Mom Monster, helpful. Thank you for asking the question. Angel Fire in the same boat. Prayers for finding an accordance. 
Yes. How can you have that cool picture and not know you're a Lutheran? I don't know, Mom. I don't know. All right. You guys like some stuff. That's cool. Cool, cool. Scrolling back. Nothing on the bottom. You guys there? There's seven or nine of you watching. Give me something. We got 10 minutes here. Give me something. Oh, oh, here's this. I don't want to forget. Okay, so here's the risk. Is this good? Is this bad when I promote you? Come here, microphone. Is this good? Is this bad when I promote you? You can see on the screen now a book called The Mark of Calling by K.M. Strid. This was a book that was sent to me, us, uh, for review, and it's been reviewed by my my 14-year-old daughter. She's now done about three or four of these reviews, by the way. I can no longer do book reviews. I just don't have the time. Um, but uh, if you like your stuff reviewed, she's pretty good at it, but you're going to get what she actually gives. So here it is, straight up. What she says is, can I read it? A good ending. Well, a good enticing story, but it reads a bit more like, it reads a bit more, it needs a bit more background explanation. Uh, feels more like a second book of a trilogy than a standalone or first book. I thought that was an interesting comment. Few confusing parts, but overall an enjoyable read. The Mark of Calling by K.M. Strid. Again, a, a book uh, founded on Christian and or Lutheran theological worldview, but a fiction story to my understanding. Um, you can see actually there's kind of a cool picture, light darkness, fighting stuff going on there. So again, um, an enjoyable read and, and I, my kid reads a ton. So if she says an enjoyable read, she's not lying to you. Um, thanks for sharing that and whatnot. Um, so why is my mic not staying flat? There we go. Much better. Um, Zephon says, uh, this is kind of random, but what is your opinion on derivative works? For example, fan fiction or fan-made video games using resources from official works. You mean aside from the fact that the companies who make these things that the derivative works would be made from don't understand how good it is for them if they let people borrow their content and redo it, and they always are trying to stop it because they're so stinking greedy? Aside from that, you know, um, I don't know. I'm not that interested in writing derivative works myself. So, but I know people who are, and why not, right? That's cool. Like, um, I don't know. Hey, wh what is a derivative work? Was, was the Star Wars Universe Fictions series, is that derivative work? It's not canon, right? It's written by people, it's published. So how do, you, how do you define that? I think borrowing or living in other people's fictional universes is fantastic, right? If you want to like write in it or play games in it or whatever. But my thing now is I want to create my own. <laughs> Like, like actually live in a fictional universe based on the Bible. I think that sounds fun, except it won't be fictional. It'll just be real. Everything else is fiction. That's, that's the fun. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know though. I mean, games, sure. If you can do it and get away with it, I'd love for companies to real, like, like, like who, who would be a good example of this? Um, I don't know. I don't care. Nah, I mean, I, I don't think it'd be wise for Nintendo to like, um, uh, what's the word? Uh, Oh, franchise. There we go. I don't think it'd be good for, for like Nintendo to franchise Link's image and let people do stuff. I mean, it probably wouldn't work out, but in terms of like turning it into a financial gain for them. But at the end of the day, again, the more people like something or resonate with a symbol, it's all about symbolism. The more somebody wrestles or, or, or clings to a symbol because it means something to them, the more you're going to use it in your life. And so all sorts of stuff is a derivative work. I mean, if you sketch a picture and put it on your wall, it's a derivative work from whatever you saw. So I don't know. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the question a little bit. But um, what, what what I will say, Zephon, though, I mean, I don't go and read. I remember being in a, in a, a writing workshop in college, and there was a guy there who 
like at the workshop, he wanted to share. It was already written. Like we're supposed to be bringing stuff we're working on. He brought this already written book about these anime characters that nobody else in the classroom knew, and it was a fanfic. And apparently, he had like a thousand fans or something. This is back in like the '90s, so that's, that's a big deal. Like a thousand people reading your stuff online, and um. I didn't find it interesting at all. It was really boring. I was supposed to know who the people were and I didn't, I didn't care. So I like, like that doesn't entice me, but, um, I think it's really cool when people take pieces of stuff and, and, uh, kind of, kind of fuse it together into some other thing. I don't know. I don't know. That's probably not a great answer. See you in an hour or so. Still waiting for a sci-fi dystopian world Christian story from last week. What? I'm living it, brother. I live it. I, I live in an RPG sci-fi dystopian reality. It's awesome. With superpowers. Call the word of God. It's great. Uh, I, I wrote a little bit more about it in the newsletter. Sign up for that. And uh, it, it'll keep coming out. Uh, podcast this week is going to be a conversation about the dangers, the dangers of taxation to Christianity in the present age. Uh, I was a little unaware. A little unaware. I was kind of aware. But I was a little unaware of how much I needed to know and how dangerous it is for your pastor, for pity's sakes. Uh, so that conversation will be coming out this week. Um, but also making that transition to subscriptions. Patreon is subscription. It's just weekly. It's just weekly. I'm going to change that language. I pray you're okay with that. It's what you're doing already anyway. The only difference is how I post it. And uh, I think I got it. it. looks like you guys are all kind of... Um, you're all having a good conversation. I don't want to end your conversation, but I want to go. I'm tired. It's Saturday morning. Thank you for hanging out. Did I say everything? Patreon, newsletter, websites, redfist.com. You can get stuff there. Uh, uh, podcast, YouTube. Uh, yeah, Saturday morning, rock on. Oh, oh, don't wallow in the muck. <laughs> I got to work on my light. Don't wallow in the muck. Rock on.